there is a very dramatic, very detailed plan that in this stage of history, it occupies much of the thought, much of the strategy of the United Kingdom. This plan, it will be set into motion, rolled out precisely with a single simple announcement. This, London Bridge is down. One day, at the moment of Queen Elizabeth's passing, Sir Edward Young, her personal secretary, will make a call through secure diplomatic channels. The Prime Minister will be woken and he'll pass the phrase along to other ministers, other dignitaries, London Bridge is down. And from there, news will pass on to all the other nations where the Queen is still head of state, to all the Commonwealth nations. And the BBC, our CBC, it'll all halt regular programming and immediately on the BBC, a solemn presenter, black closed, will announce her death while God Save the Queen is played for the last time of her rule against the backdrop of a British flag. Now, Charles, currently the Prince of Wales, he'll be immediately declared king and his siblings will gather to kiss his hand. And should the Queen be away from Buckingham Palace at the time of her death, her body will return there and she'll be placed in the room that overlooks the palace's interior courtyard. Below, there'll be an altar, a pall or a burial cloth, the royal flag, and four grenadier guards. Their bearskin hats will be tilted and their rifles pointed toward the earth, standing in a final somber watch for their monarch. Now, one of her officials described London Bridge this way. This plan, he said, it'll be 10 days of sorrow and spectacle. Sorrow and spectacle. That, that's how you honor royalty after all. And all of this is particularly important these days given Prince Philip's passing and her recent illnesses. And when it happens, there will be endless news coverage for days. Most of it, it's already planned. It's just waiting in the vaults for the day London Bridge finally goes down. Networks will line up one person after another who, who knew her or who once met her or some that just saw her once from a crowd. And when they're questioned by the interviewer, they'll all speak of the woman she was. Not just the Queen of the United Kingdom, of the Commonwealth, that she was also Supreme Governor of the Church of England, including the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion. They'll talk about her younger years, her time in the military. Did you know she was a trained mechanic? About how she ascended to the throne and her love for her children and her grandchildren and, of course, her fondness for corgis. It'll focus mostly on her life and men mention just minimally her death. And we'll hear about her contribution to her subjects, her nation, the whole world. And she'll be honored in the most glorious, majestic way possible. On top of all the shows, all the movies, the series, all the things that have been made in the last few years, the passing of this great monarch will create another surge of interest and content. And all of it fit for a queen beloved by her people. London Bridge is down, but her legacy lives on. See, that's how you honor royalty. When her time comes, as it does for all of us, no matter if you bleed red or royal blue, their faults will be minimized and their goodness magnified. London Bridge is down. This is the plan to ensure all of that happens for Queen Elizabeth. This plan, it's regularly rehearsed, refined, and remembered. Nothing can interfere, can interfere or be left to chance. But today, Good Friday, we remember a different royal death. The man on the cross, King of the Jews, the Christ. 
over and over again in the four Gospels. The stories, they all tell us about him, his life, his work, his teaching. But when it gets to his last days, especially for the night of the Last Supper and, and, and the terrible day that follows, in the Gospels, everything slows to a crawl. During the three years before that night, the years he gathered disciples and taught and performed miracles, there is a question he's asked frequently. Are you the Christ? And each time he's asked, it's like he refuses to give a straight answer. But in his last hours, when he's on trial, in the moment that it's in his best interest to deny being the Christ, so that they'd, they'd let him go free, let him head home to Galilee, then when the pressure is greatest, that's when finally he admits to it. Pontius Pilate, Roman governor, asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? And his answer is this. It is as you say. After all, that's what the Christ was supposed to be. King of the Jews. The chosen one, handpicked by God to restore their kingdom. Now often, when we hear about Jesus Christ, th that title, the Christ, it sounds more like a last name. When I first started hearing about Jesus, he was referred to as Jesus Christ, the same way we refer to someone as Joel Klemek or Jeanette Hardy or Hal Roberts or Daniel Zapula. It just sounds like his last name. And so you had Jesus Christ, son of Joseph Christ, who took Mary as his wife and she became Mary Christ. And their sons included James Christ and Jude Christ. And there was Uncle Christ. And all the talk in the 80s about who the mysterious Antichrist would be. Maybe a pope or a state ruler? No, of course not. Antichrist is Joseph Christ's sister. But really, Christ, it, it's a reference to his kingship. Centuries before Jesus, there was David, the young shepherd boy. He was chosen by God to be the new king of Israel. And God made an eternal pact with David that there would be a king from his line on the throne through eternity. And to seal that pact, God had the prophet Samuel pour oil over David's head to show that David was the one especially chosen for this role. This marked him. He was the chosen one, the anointed one. And so in the book of 2 Samuel, David's last words are recorded. And in them, he talks about himself and he uses these words. He says, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse. The utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. Th those words, the man anointed by the God of Jacob. And that's what it says. And literally in, in Hebrew, it would read uh, the Messiah of God. And in Greek, language of the New Testament, it would say the Christ. David believes his pact with God will one day be fulfilled, that one day there will be another anointed king, a Christ, the chosen one of God, who will rule not just Israel, but all lands everywhere. And he would come to Zion, the city of Jerusalem, to claim his throne. And the plans of God for this, they're announced and predicted over and over again in the prophecies of the Old Testament. This king will ride into the city of kings on a colt, and his kingdom will have no end. He'll be the prince of peace. And then it starts to happen. One day during the Passover, the crowds cry out as he rides into town, Hosanna to the son of David. Hail the warrior king who will conquer Rome. Give us our freedom. Restore the kingdom of God. See, the crowds praise him that day. But it doesn't last. King on a colt on Palm Sunday. Criminal on a cross by Friday. 
and over his head hung a sign, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But he did not receive the honor of a king. No one lined up to remember him. His friends fled. One friend was even questioned by three different interviewers. And each time he pretended to not even know the Christ. Jesus was to be the head of their religion, just like the queen was of theirs in England. But the priests turned on him. The crowds that praised him on Palm Sunday cried for crucifixion on Friday. His people abandoned him. The ruling nation executed him. But not until they had flogged him so badly, his skin and sinew hung in unrecognizable strips. Is that how you honor royalty? London Bridge is down. In that sense, his death unfolded exactly according to plan. It started because the priests and the Pharisees, they'd had enough of him, enough of his popularity, enough of hearing the crowds that adored him, enough of hearing about the man named Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. All of this, all the attention was a threat to their power. So in John 12, the day of Palm Sunday, they complain about it. The whole world is going after him, they say, which means the whole world isn't following them. So they draft their plans. Plans to catch him, to harm him, then to turn him over for execution at Rome's hands. They draft public relations strategies, detailed plans to clamp down and restore their authority. But they can't find him to bring London Bridge down. See, the homeless king had no palace where he could lay his head. He taught in the temple by day and he couch surfed by night. The priests knew they couldn't seize him in, in the temple in front of the crowds, but they didn't know how to find him after dark until until one of Jesus' own disciples made his plans to turn on the Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And then, dramatically, while Jesus is praying in the garden and his sleeping friends are supposed to be standing watch, then Judas the betrayer arrives with the religious leaders and their guards. And like London Bridge, the plan is set into motion with a single sentence spoken by the Christ. This, friend, do what you came for kiss on the cheek, cuffs on his hands, and Jesus is led away for the last time. Is that how you honor royalty? Jesus, his face leaking blood and sweat and tears, he calmly says, friend, do what you came for. Uh, on the day in our time that the aging queen finally passes on, the military will stand guard, parliament will gather. When London Bridge goes down, everyone will do all they've prepared for. Uh, on the Friday, we remember today, Jesus says he could have gathered all of heaven's armies if he wanted. Every force of nature, he says, could be sent into action by his command. And in, instead, there's just one command that puts everything into, his act, into action. One sentence to his betrayer. Friend, do what you came for. And over the next hours, there'd be a long and torturous night and an even worse morning. And I imagine the Father watched in grief from heaven that, that maybe all of heaven mourned and wept. And it's a reminder of a scene from centuries before when a father named Abraham climbed the mountain, the very same mountain of Jerusalem, ready to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, on an altar of wood. But at the last moment, the voice of the Lord called out a command and stopped it. And I wonder if the angels watched and expected the same thing on that Friday as the one and only son hung on the cross, an altar of wood, 
as his breathing slowed. Long ago, God had called out to Abraham, Stop! Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. But that day, on that cross, God would not withhold his son. The son would not withhold himself. God did not call out to stop the sacrifice. There was no one to cry out or sing, God save our king, our Christ. Instead, the king screamed out in gut-wrenching pain. The Gospel of Matthew says he cried out, but it's too soft a translation. Really, it says he screamed in a guttural, raw, emotional way. He screamed with such power, the earth shook, the temple curtain tore from top to bottom, darkness fell over the earth, and his last words were spoken. It is finished. London Bridge is down. The religious authorities and the Roman powers, they have won. The king is dead. Their plan was executed perfectly. Or so they thought. It began with, do what you came for. It ended with, it is finished. What they didn't realize is that all along, it was not their plan at all. Those were his words, his plans. And so for months, Jesus had been telling his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must be crucified. It must happen, he said, to fulfill the prophecies of Scripture. It must happen that way so that he can rise again on the third day. And so that night in the garden, surrounded by guards, before his friends would flee, he says he could activate heaven's armies for his defense. He could conquer. He could assume a throne on earth. But, he says, this has all taken place, that the writings of our prophets, our good plans might be fulfilled. The authorities schemed and planned to hand him over to Pilate. They believed his fate would rest in Pilate's hands. They were mistaken. Jesus surrendered himself to Pilate because, as he said, Pilate would have no authority down here if it wasn't given to him from up there. And so all along, even in Pilate's court, his life was still in the hands and the plans of the one who planned everything. Plans so accurate, so careful, so detailed that not even a hair of your head can fall to the ground without being noticed. It's all part of the plan that included, even necessitated, a stop at the cross. And part of the plan, part of the plan is now in your hands. That we all gather here today around an empty cross in Sunday's empty tomb. And we wonder at the majesty of the Christ, the great conquering king, humble on a donkey, his plans so big, so majestic, so detailed, so dramatic, that he knew about you, the days of your life. He ordered your steps before even a star shone in the sky. And he knew you would find your way here to the foot of the cross and that now is in the garden. He asks you this, he says, friend, what have you come here for? What brings us to him? Hope for change. Lives that are so disrupted, a world so chaotic that we plead for him to defeat evil empires, to turn things around? Or do we come to him hoping nothing will change, that everything will stay safe and ordered and our kids, they, they won't leave, they won't have to grow up and go on their own way, that no one has to leave, that everything can stay just as it is? Do we come looking for him to restore a kingdom or a government? or to restore a body or a relationship or a broken heart? Did we come to him because our plans, even our best, most detailed ones, they get thwarted and that end up on a cross or in a tomb and we want him to resurrect, to fix our plans? Or do we come to find our spot in his plan, 
a plan so perfect, so precise, that we only find our peace in Him. We only find our hope in Him, our purpose in Him, our joy in Him. That even when our plans fall apart, we still fall perfectly into His. That what the cross and then the empty tomb teach us is that the worst thing is never the last thing. That love triumphs over all. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it back up again. So this command, this plan, I received from my Father. And so, perhaps, we gather here today at the cross in the hope of turning the question back on Him. Friend, Savior, Christ, our King, do what you came for. Bring freedom, bring peace, bring joy, bring love. Bring it to me, bring it to my family, bring it to the city, bring it to the whole world. Bring us home. Conquer the death in my life. Fulfill your plans for me. And we rest on this hope that when things look most desperate, that is when they are most hope-filled. What looks like an end is just a beginning. So today we echo his words in the garden like a prayer he taught us. Father, Savior, Friend, King, Christ, do what you came for. May your will be done on earth as in heaven forever and ever. Amen.